Hey guys, if you like listening to us, um, you can follow us on Twitter or email us. Follow us on Twitter at writer, W-R-T-R, bagel, B-A-G-E-L, basket, B-S-K-T, on Twitter, or email us, writersbagelbasket at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you want to do. Submit fan art. Submit a logo. Do anything, because we want to hear from you. And if you have show suggestions, email them. Summer flop busters. Ah, oh, here we begin with the first most anticipated mo- Okay, we're doing Brothers Bloom. And you don't know what it is, so listen, because it's in the basket. The writer's bagel basket. Tear me apart, Lisa! You want to be a farmer? Here's a couple of acres. Sorry, Jeff. You lose. It was Professor Plum. I said Plum. The men you seek think you are dead, Kimosa. Pitch to the start of the Bernoulli Convergenator. If he puts a car in fifth gear, he can jumpstart the whole thing. We don't have to be mean. Because remember, no matter where you go, there you are. Hello, welcome to Writer's Bagel Basket. I am Scott Kurland, and we are starting off Summer Flopbuster with a movie that came out in May. So the way that we're going to do this is differently. I, I stole the idea from Lee Martin, who does Jukebox Zeros. Lee has been a co-host. Lee is a very good friend of mine. And uh, I'm going to give a spiel after I introduce my co-host. My guest host is one of my best friends in the world, and he flew in from Scotland. I was totally going to say, and his arms are tired. (laughs) Matt Sinclair. Hello. And you're doing it like you're in a sitcom. I know, I know. I I feel like I just walked in. It's like... Uh, hi, it's great to be on the show today. Um, yeah, happy to be here in the basket. Am I in? Am I in the basket? No. <laughs> okay. No. All right. All we right. call it the writers' room. Okay. Well, and, I, and I am. Our, in, our, I am in the room. And the fans are called bagel leaders. Uh, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie we're talking about is the second sophomore film from Ryan Johnson, the director of Brick. He also directed Looper. And a film called Star Wars The Last Jedi. Heard of it? This was his second film, and in my opinion, it's his best. So, a little backstory. Brothers Bloom was in pre-production for three years after Brick came out in 2005. Brick was a film that was on a small budget, made a lot of money for Focus Features. So they gave uh, Ryan Johnson the opportunity to make any movie he wanted, when he pitched the idea, they said no. He went to Lionsgate and Summit Entertainment, who they made. Uh, they they make small films. You may have heard of them. Uh, they're a little obscure. They're called Hunger Games and Twilight. So he went there, and what he pitched them was a con artist movie. Now the person at the time who was intrigued by this was a actor named Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was in line to play the role of Stephen Bloom, who Mark Ruffalo played, and Mark Ruffalo was in line to play Bloom, who Adrian Brody plays. And this went on for about two years. And then finally, when the film was ready to roll, Tom Cruise walked away because he was making... uh, (laughs) I believe he was in the process of making Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Ooh, good movie. (laughs) Yeah, so from there... Uh, the casting process began, and he was gonna go. Ryan Johnson was gonna go with his favorite person to work with, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was in the middle of making Five Hundred Days of Summer, and finally Adrian Brody got cast in the role of uh, Stephen, 
and Mark Ruffalo was still playing Bloom, and Adrian Brody said, hey, I want to switch roles, and that's how we got this movie. Now, the budget was estimated at $20 million, and it only made $5 million, and that's why it is our first summer flopbuster. So, Matt, why don't you give us a quick synopsis of the story of the Brothers Bloom? Okay, Brothers Bloom. Actually, I'm just going to, before we jump right into it, I am going to say I really, really enjoy this movie. Um, That's not true. No, 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 no. When it first came out. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get it when it first came out. And then I saw it about five or six more times after that and just... it it it, cl- it clicked the second time I saw it, and we I, saw it I can't even tell you the number of times I've seen it now. We saw it together the first time in the theater, and you're like, uh... It I- is so fresh in my mind, because we literally just watched it, but I think today was probably about the the 20... Somewhere in the 20s where I've, I've seen this movie. I really, really like this movie. And the first time we saw it, you were like, eh, it was okay. And I was like, that was brilliant. That was wonderful. <laughs> and you were like, Really? No, it's yeah. I mean, it's like I said. I I didn't. There was something something about it that I didn't appreciate um, the first time I saw it. Um, but well, it grew. It grew on me. It really, really grew on me by that second time. I had to point out to you that. So here's a spoiler for the movie. Um, they're con men, and the spoiler is that she's in on it the whole time. She knows she's being conned, and I told you to watch it again knowing that. She, she in this case, being the female protagonist of the film, uh, Rachel Weisz, who plays Penelope. 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 Um, yeah, no, I mean, the thing is, is also I think when I first saw this film, um, I was feeling uh, very cynical, and the movie is really whimsical. It's actually really, it's got a really light attitude about everything. Um, it feels like, Wes Anderson should have made this movie. This feels like a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Who who directed um, You've Got Mail? Nora Ephron. Okay, yeah. So it's like if Nora Ephron and like Martin Scorsese and who else did we Wes say? Wes Anderson. And we, yeah, we, well, tried to make a Wes Anderson movie. That's the thing. It feels it feels like a Wes Anderson movie because there is, um, there's a cuteness and a whimsy to it. There's, um, there's talk, an awkwardness to it. They talk in like Russian literature metaphors. Yeah, um, and, and everyone is very well read, and they everyone's all... very well dressed, and the set design in the film is fantastic. But um, yeah, I did. I, like I said, I think I was kind of cynical when I saw it the first time, and I didn't appreciate it. But by the second time around, um, it clicked, and now it's become one of my all-time favorite movies. Now, time for the synopsis. Okay, so the synopsis. So the movie um, it opens in what I presume to be the 1960s. It looks like the 60s, but it's about two little boys who are uh, orphans, very well-dressed orphans. They're wearing suits, Little two little boys who wear suits, uh, brothers, uh, Stephen, um, who is the older brother. and Our dad is George Clooney. And who, who's the younger brother? Uh, they call him Bloom, but that's not, they're the His brothers. name is Bloom, 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 and Stephen Bloom. Bloom, Bloom, okay. Stephen Bloom, Bloom, Bloom. So you've got Mario, Mario, and Luigi, Mario. Um, Stephen Bloom and Bloom, Bloom, uh, two, two brothers um, who live in, at the time, I presume, small-town America, who decide that even from this very, very young age, what do, they, what do you think, they are like six and eight, something no, like that? No, they said uh, Bloom is 10 and Stephen is 13. Okay, 10 and 13. Um, yeah, so these little brothers um, from even this early age decide they're going to be con men, and um, they grow up to be con men, but the movie opens with these two brothers in a small town, um tricking kids into uh into going into what is presumed to be a magic cave 
um, told to them by a scary vagabond homeless person. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so these they, they talk like they talk like they shouldn't be their age. They're they're like. They're like the people from Cocoon. They're like old people who woke up one day and they're like, oh my god, the aliens were right. We're children again. Yeah. Um, it's like if Quentin Tarantino tried to write dialogue for children. Like, they're, they're, very, they're too well-read. They're too well-read to be kids. But, um, yeah, no, so these two brothers, they grow up to be... Um, <laughs> they like the films of Klug McLuger. <laughs> <laughs> these two brothers, they grow up to be con men. And then it kind of goes into so you have the back they have this very light backstory, but then it goes into the first real con of the film, which is um, brings us to Penelope. So you have these two. Well, actually, it's before then. We we're introduced to the, we go from the two well, younger brothers to the two older brothers. Well, this is just the quick one because then we're going to break it down. Yeah, the two the two older brothers, um, who are played by uh, Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody, who's the younger brother, and Mark Ruffalo, who's the older brother, which I have problems with because Adrian Brody's like way older than Mark. He's Ruffalo, not but... though. We looked it up. He's actually Ruffalo was forty two when they made this, and Adrian Brody was thirty six. Okay, okay. But Brody is the second youngest person in this movie. Rinko Kikuchi, who plays Bang Bang, Bang Bang, uh, is the old, is the youngest, and Ruffalo's the oldest, and uh, Rachel Weisz is thirty nine. Okay, so, um, so the movie opens um, after after the the prelude, the this prologue as these children. Um, the movie opens with Adrian Brody and uh, Mark Ruffalo pulling this con, in, I presume it's Berlin, somewhere in Europe. Uh, it's Europe. Um, and. Um, then, then what? What Mark Ruffalo leads uh, Adrian Brody to what will be the real con of the film, which is this con uh, pulled over our main protagonist, uh, Penelope, who is um, she's like a spinster. She's, she's living a rich shut-in. Yeah, she's living all alone in this huge, huge uh, mansion in <clears throat> New Jersey, of all places. And Bloom prefaces all of his cons on the basis of one thing. So in the beginning, the first con is to get his brother to talk to a girl. The second con that we see is that if a man whose wife cheated on him and left him, would he shoot that the, uh, the fake image of his wife he had in his head to death? And this one is on the preface that this woman loves collecting hobbies, Will will she want to be what they are, and that's what it's all prefaced on. Yeah, and then the rest of the movie is this kind of whimsical love story slash con. Um, the thing I like about it there are, there are layers to this con. It's a con within within a con. So you have um, Penelope, who we don't know if she knows that she's actually in on it. She's she's led to believe that these are two con men antique dealers who are trying uh, to heist. No, she this. doesn't know they're con men. She she thinks they're uh, smuggler smuggler antiquity swindlers. Okay, yeah. So antique antiquity smugglers who end up really being con men. But the thing is, is that this, there's, like I said, there's layers to this. We don't know if Penelope is in on the con the whole time, if she really knows what's happening. I think she she is. I, from the very beginning when I saw this, almost, Jesus Christ, almost 10 years ago, um, I, I feel like she's always known that like they're trying to take advantage of her. I don't think she knew at first that they were con men, but I think she knows that these guys are, are up to no good, and because she had no contact for almost 36 years, she just was like, you know what? To hell with it. I'm going to fall in love. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, the, the con within a con thing. So at the, at the end of the movie, there's, there's a part where basically the, the, the air quote jig is up where they tell her that 
that they're con men and that they swindled her and that's it. But that's actually part of the bigger con. Yeah, there's still like her, 45 minutes go. left of yeah. the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so let's talk a little bit about the beginning of the movie. So the movie opens up with um, Ricky Jay, of all people, being the Alec Baldwin, Wes Anderson-style Bob Bal- Balaban narrator. So like how Wes Anderson had... Baldwin narrate uh, Royal Tenenbaums and um, Balaban narrate Moonrise Kingdom. He has freaking Ricky, Ricky, Ricky Jay, who is the master magician. He, if you don't know who he is, he did all of the magic, um, sleight of hand for both the Illusionist and the Prestige. Yeah, um, Ricky. Yeah, Ricky Jay is a great magician. He's a good actor. He's a good narrator too. Doesn't he also narrate um, State in Maine? Because yes. he's the di- he's the diner owner in that movie. But I'm pretty sure he al- is also the narrator. Well, he's of that the Balaban in that. Right. Um, yeah, and, and it makes sense um, having Ricky Jay as a narrator. He's he's a good narrator. But there are so many magic tricks, so many card like close up magic card tricks in this movie. Um, I feel like it was necessary necessary to have him. Now, the reason why this is in the bagel basket is because a film like this, it's great. It's a fantastic film, but it should it would have never gotten made if it wasn't for the writer's strike. If there wasn't a writer's strike, this film, and if Tom Cruise wasn't so involved in being a producer on it, this film would have never gotten made. Like, this film is one of those movies that's so good that it, should not have been made i'm glad it was though it's a lot of fun to watch um so yeah so beginning of the movie you got these two kids who are dressed like they're like david lynch or tom waits kids they're wearing they're wearing black suits (laughs) you wait here daddy's gonna pick you up in about 45 minutes black suits with white shirts no tie and they're wearing uh, a derby and a pork pie hat that's actually what i wrote in my notes is that this movie could have been called derbies and pork pie hats um that would be if this was a Wes Anderson film. Most definitely. <laughs> the most exquisite derbies and pork pie hats of Westchester County. But these um these two brothers, so the, the, the con, it's a con within a con. The two brothers are, um, they're conning their neighborhood kids to give them $30 to take them to an, a magic cave um, where... Because what is it with the town? It's a one-hat town. Yeah. It ha- literally has one of everything. One movie theater, one laundromat. One dry cleaner. One magic cave, apparently. <laughs> one cat with one leg that travels along in one roller skate. That That's where this is like the most Wes Anderson-y, because it's a single cat who has one appendage and using another appendage to get around. So we, we, we're led to believe that the con the con is actually to trick these kids out of $30. But the, the truth is there's a bigger con, which is that the kids who go into this cave to, to, to find this magic treasure... Um, end up getting filthy, and all of their clothes has to go to the one-town dry cleaner where we find out the two kids were in on that the whole time where they have a cut of the deal from the dry cleaner. So, again, con with the theme of this, this film is con within a con. You glossed over my favorite part of this whole Wh- Which scene. is what? You know what it is. When they're telling the story to these kids and they're all sitting around... <laughs> and there's this one kid. Oh right, right, right. <laughs> there's this one kid. Who there's like looks- a 38 year old man child amongst <laughs> these 12 year olds. Yeah, yeah there, there's this kid who looks super old to be in this group of well off kids, and uh, they go, "Oh, he said if you give give him thirty dollars." And this kid stands up. He looks like if Craig T. Nelson is trying to be like a 10 year old boy. He's like, "Hey, that's that's two dollars a piece." And he's got like this 
this and like weird, a bowl cut like a really bad like mop top haircut yeah <laughs> and because he looks so old and i that was the first thing i noticed the first time i ever saw this movie i was like that kid is way too old to be in with i always wonder how you give direction to kids like that where it's like ryan johnson's just like hey kids say your lines expositionally he's <laughs> just like hey 30 bucks that's like two dollars each can you say it more like coach can you say it more like it's written in the script um but um yeah so 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 that's yeah again calm calm within a con the kids the kids give the brothers bloom 30 dollars which they get smacked they get smacked by their foster parents get the money stolen but then we find out the real con was the deal with the dry cleaner the whole time so this this sets up this is a, a transition from their childhood into their adulthood that opens with the next con i love how i love how ricky j explains it to the audience he's like if you look at step number six it says percentage o henry's percent means percentage wage which means a percentage cut really ricky j you have to explain to us what a percent signal means <laughs> It means a cut of the money that O. Henry's would be getting. So these kids probably, if you think about it, like back then, and it was probably like the mid-70s? Yeah. Yeah, it was the mid-70s. So he probably charged each parent $5 per article of clothing, and there was like 15 kids. I don't think it's as much as they think. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably like 10 bucks. Yeah, because (laughs) the amount of money that they had... Uh, unless it was one of the first dry cleaners, and it was like this is new, so he was charging twenty bucks an art- article of clothing. But the point is, they come out with like all this money, and they get sent back to the orphanage, and they use the money to buy rocket pops. Yeah, because they do rocket pops. Rocket pops is like like these kids have you know money to buy cocaine because <laughs> the rocket pops are like these well off kids could afford rocket pops, where the brothers Bloom could afford. I forget, but in the narration for the beginning of the film, do we ever find out what happened to their parents? We just know that they're orphans, but we never really quite find out what what happened. They're dead. Okay. <laughs> I think I think it's like a James and the Giant Peach that got ran over by a rhinoceros. There is a weird Oliver Twist thing happening in this film, but we'll we'll get to that point later. I want to get to that when we introduce the villain, the, the real villain of the film. So so we go from the kid's childhood to this next con, where it opens up with Adrian Brody standing in front of a bookcase completely on fire, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great. How a did really we end up in this transition. Billy Joel music video? Yeah. <laughs> um, and he has a British accent, and he's getting. Uh, shot by another Englishman over what we presume to be some sort of, I don't know, Egyptian treasure heist. He, me- he, he mentions like a scarab beetle and um, it's very, very theatrical. I yeah. presume it's over divorce alimony. Like, I'm not sure well, what the real treasure is so in this con. What, what I think it is, because he says it has to do with a love triangle. And because he says, you get the money, I get the girl. So... <laughs> That was very subtle. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having a mint. Um, but yeah, he says you get you you get the money, I get the girl, and everyone gets what they want. And then um, and they get shot in the chest with what we know is to be a fake gun. Yeah. So this whole con, this five second con that we that we come in in the middle of, is based on the preface that. Uh, Steven, now played by Mark Ruffalo and not the kid from... Yeah, I, sh- I should point out, the kid from Where the Wild Things Are plays young Mark Ruffalo. Yes. Good child actor, too, actually. <laughs> I feel like that... He's yeah. only made three movies. 
his last movie was The Sitter with yeah. Jonah Hill. Um, so he prefaced his whole con on this guy's wife left him. Would he want to kill her but take it out on another person? <laughs> and he actually has Adrian Brody wearing what uh, the wife was wearing and say kind of around what she said. Yeah. That that was that's messed up. Well after after he, after Adrian gets shot there's there's a plot device that he mentions that actually plays a huge huge role in this film which is that he has a squib. He fakes his own death and he has a, a squib, a fake blood packet. Um, and he says that it tastes like tin foil. Um, the fake blood, real blood, real blood tastes like copper, but fake blood tastes like tin foil. And he mentions that right when his when his when he gets back up off the ground after being shot. Um, the funny thing I noticed about this film too is there is a huge element of the Sting, which is a film that we love. But from the Sting, that's my favorite movie of all time. I've said it so many times. In the Sting, there's a bar where all the con artists are friends, and they all kind of hang out. It's like kind of like the villains' lair, you know, like the like the Hellfire Club. But right after they pull off this heist, Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo end up in this bar, this like European, this beautiful um, European bar with all of these other presumable. Con, con artists and vagabonds where they all drink and party and, and tell stories of their of their adventure and riches and they're actually they're explaining the story of this con that they just completed at this bar the person who's explaining it is if you are familiar at all with any ryan johnson movie his the two people he uses the most is one is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's not Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a throwaway cameo in this. And the other one is Noah Segan. And if you know who he is, he was in Brick. He played Dode. He was in um, Lupa. He was in he's Lupa. in Lupa. He was in Lupa. I love he, Lupa. He played Kid Blue. And he's in Star uh, He's in Star Wars The Last Jedi. He is one of the pilots who, uh, many spoilers, causes the mutiny with... with uh, What's his name with Poe Dameron? So this throwaway role goes to Noah Segan, who's like, let's hear it. And he's got like a bad like Italian accent. Let's hear it oh, for I, the brother's plume. Yeah, so let me let me mention, there are two things worth mentioning here. Um, the, the, the guy, the British guy who shoots Adrian Brody at the, at the end of this con, this fiery bookshelf, you know, con, quotes a line from the movie The Man Who Would Be, the man who would be King, which is about two, two best friends who are con artists. Um, and the line is uh, nine months and a thousand summers ago. Yeah, which which I think is um, really interesting. But also, Mark Ruffalo is doing like a fake Russian slash Slavic accent. His accent you? work is terrible. Because uh, I, I don't mean, know if it's meant to be terrible or if his accents are really just that bad. I've I've never really he seen got him the do Boston a Boston accent right in uh, Spotlight. He, he has, but I haven't seen him do a lot of films where he uses any accent other than his own, and it just it's again terrible Not Italian true. accent. Not in the bar. true at all. He does an accent when he's the Hulk. He talks like this. Oh my god! His, his what? Anyway, his his accent work in this film is all over the place. Um, but well, he only does that one accent. Yeah, whatever that is. Because he does it in that scene. At and he the does beginning. it at the zoo. He does it again <laughs> at the zoo. Well, the zoo is a part of this. So so the speakeasy is in the um, <laughs> the zoo. It's like in the middle of the zoo. <laughs> yeah. This is also when we get introduced to Bang Bang, which is worth mentioning. Bang this Bang is, is my favorite character. Bang, so Bang Bang, she's... 
She's not a mute. She does speak, but she's very... There's a pantomime quality to her character. She spends most of the film not speaking, but being very physical. Her character is based on Charles Bronson's character from The Magnificent Seven. Mm. The guy who knew all about the knives and the dynamite. That's who she's based after. <coughs> and it it shows. Like... He has a few lines in that, she has a few lines in this, but she is fantastic. Like, she doesn't need dialogue. She is so much fun. Oh, very, very fun to watch. Yeah, she play. yeah, just as you said, she plays a, uh, a Japanese explosives ex- expert, hence her, her nickname, Bang Bang. I don't even think that's her nickname. <laughs> you think that's I, a real name? I think that's her real Might name. Might be. Because... They later in the movie they explain where she comes from. Apparently, one day Bloom was making breakfast and he looked down and looked up and she was there. <laughs> she just showed up, and uh, they refer to her as the fifth beetle, <laughs> which I love that. She also kills the guy in this scene. She does because the guy is hitting on her and makes a horrible stereotype. He's like, you know, I'm really into anime. He says it like he's like. Uh, Marvin the Martian. That's like a that's like such a throwaway line. I forget what it's called, but there's a term in animated films where you add dialogue um, just to be funny. That's off screen, and it's that's one of those lines where it's just like the punch up. Yeah, yeah, it's a pu- it's a punch up line where it's just like you know I'm really into anime, and then she accidentally slash unpurposely kills him with um, an explosive. Uh, yeah, an exploding cigarette. And he's like, what? Um, but this is at, right after this bar scene. Um, this this is a very important scene because it sets up the whole movie. It it ends up with um, Adrian Brody uh, Bloom and Stephen uh, Mark Ruffalo in the zoo. And Stephen a- Adrian Brody at this point he's done so many cons. He doesn't want to be a con man anymore. He wants to have some sort of normal life. And Stephen, this is when he explains to him that well, this is the last con that we're going to do. This is the big, big, um, the big con. Well, no, that. That comes in like five seconds. This is where he says he's out and he just walks he's away. Out. He's out. And then cut to three months later in Montenegro. That's where Steven shows up. Right. Um, oh, and before that, uh, Nora Nora Zyther, who was also in Brick, shows up. Like So it feels like in this movie they're just getting rid of the characters who were in the previous film. Because in this, this one scene you have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Lucas Haas as two brothers who are just dancing in the background. Noah Segan, who is their, you know, compatriot who they're talking to. And then Nora Zether, who was the femme fatale in Brick, who is trying to seduce uh, Adrian Brody. Mm. And, And, like, it just feels like he's, like, trying to bookend his last movie. That that's what it felt like to me. So oh, certainly. So so now they're in Montenegro, and yeah, which apparently Adrian Brody. I don't know if he's like if it's just like a shack or if he lives inside a lighthouse. But essentially, he lives in this like one bedroom studio flat on an island, only big enough for one bedroom studio flat. <laughs> yeah, he lives on the lone island by himself that has one cafe. Do you think it's because like he wanted to live in that one hat that one hat town? So he's trying to kind of. It, it's a weird thing. It feels. I I swear to God, his bed's a hammock. Like he's he lives like he's Gilligan. <laughs> like he's like he like the he's the, like like he's Robinson Caruso. Like he's the last man on this island on this earth. But um, yeah. So now now we're in his his one bedroom Montenegro flat where, uh, just as you said, Stephen Mark Ruffalo explains the big con coming, which is 
uh, which introduces us to Rachel Weisz. Who is Penelope Stamp. And uh, Bloom has one rule. You never play women. Never, never make a mark a woman because that's just cruel. It's fine to go after some dolting idiot man, but it's wrong to go after a woman. But that's what he says. The real reason is he's afraid he's going to fall in love. And what you need to understand is this entire con is based around the fact that he doesn't want to make it women because he's going to fall in love. But the whole con is not about Penelope. The whole, this whole con was set up by Steven for Bloom. Mm. He's trying to con his brother mm. because he wants his brother to finally just talk to a girl. Yeah. Finally like fall in love and just not need him so much. Aww. So sweet. So uh she lives in this like William Randolph Hearst like style Xanadu house. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. She lives in this huge, huge mansion. Beautiful, beautiful house. I actually haven't seen this 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 house outside of this film, so I don't know if it's like really in I presume it's really in New Jersey because why of all the exotic weird locations in this movie why new jersey but yeah yeah, she lives in this huge xanadu-esque hearst mansion um the reason why this movie was so expensive is because of all of the places they go to it costs so much money to film there so yeah i mean we'll, we'll go through all the locales we can go through all the locales real quick so you have middle middle america you have this mansion in Jersey. You have the flat in Montenegro, the bar, which I presume is in Berlin, because they they exit the bar and there's German. Gra- there's a lot of German graffiti. So you have Berlin, Don't Jersey, Middle America, Montenegro. Then you get to the real heist, which is in Prague. You, you go from Jersey to Prague, Prague to Montenegro, Montenegro to Saint Petersburg, Russia. So we have Prague, Saint Petersburg, Montenegro, somewhere in New Jersey, and Middle America. Am I f- am I forgetting any place? In Berlin. In Berlin. This this just also another reason why this movie was so expensive because at the time, Mark Ruffalo hadn't been nominated for an Oscar. He was snubbed for Zodiac. But you have two Academy Award winners in Rachel Weisz and Adrian Brody. So their prices were probably in the five million range. And then you have. Rinko Kikuchi, who is right hot off of her nomination for Babel. So so the, their prices alone, like most of the budget went into securing these locations and getting these actors. You paid the $5 million for Rachel Weiss, but you get Rachel Weiss's butt for free. <laughs> this, this is probably... <laughs> This is probably like the the sixth time she's shown her butt in a movie. She does, yeah. So so let's so let's get into that. So so they're staking out Adrian Brody, Bang Bang, and uh, Mark Ruffalo are staking out Rachel Weisz's. Please call him uh, the Rough Palace, the Rough. And um, she lives alone in this palace, and she drives a really really expensive car. It's like this obnoxious yellow and black. It's got to be like it's got to be like a Countach or like oh, some sort a, of Maserati. It's like, a it's Lambo. A, it's a Lamborghini. Okay, so they're shaking out her house, trying to see what she's what she's like. And essentially, it's like um, it's like a get help kind of puppy love kind of scenario. Adrian Brody's going to crash his bicycle into her car. And they're gonna fall in love, and he's gonna bring her on this this adventure. What will be this con? But in truth, she's um, she has epilepsy, so he goes to he goes to run his bicycle into her car, and she crashes her own car. We see her crash her car a but lot in this we movie. We never by the way. hear about the epilepsy 
ever again. Yeah, like, it's like, like a throwaway. Like thing. it's a throwaway. Um, so when he wakes up, oh, how he's dressed. He looks like a character out of, like, wacky races. Oh, yeah. He's wearing a, a black aviator, like, pilot's cap with a giant... A fuzzy one. A fuzzy one with giant goggles. Um, I'm surprised he's not wearing a scarf. Like, it's he really looks that like, he cartoonish. He looks like Dirk Dastardly. I'll get you, poopsie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he he looks ridiculous. I, I Why didn't he... He should have just been wearing a bullet cap if he was going to look that that ridiculous. So Legitimately. He, so he wakes up. Um, so they go... The, the Cut to Rachel Weiss in the hospital. In the hospital. And... This is Ra- also when we see her butt. She yeah. gets up. She's wearing a hospital gown. And she, and she turns away from the camera. And yeah, she's like, can you give me a ride home? And this is... Okay, so... Every movie at this point that she's been in she's had a butt scene it's true uh constant gardener and uh, mummy returns i think i'd mentioned yeah when we were watching this yeah but but it just doesn't like i i'm always uncomfortable with nudity in movies because like sometimes it just feels out of nowhere and i'm fine with it <laughs> that's you <laughs> <laughs> um, but Rachel Weiss, the movie's like it happens in is like this, which is kind of like a quirky like rom com like heist movie, or Enemy at the Gates, which takes place during the goddamn Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it takes place during World War Two, and then Constant Gardner, which it takes place, you know, in South Africa. Do you do you also see her naked in the fountain? Yes. Yeah. But she's dying. Yeah. So sad. I'm, sad nudity. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, this is why it's inappropriate and it's weird. Makes no sense. Right. This is also when we learn um, that though she is a shut-in, she made good use of her time. She's very, very talented and artistic. She, because she was a lonely child, we we find out that her parents thought she was like a bubble baby, like she was allergic to everything. When in truth, she was allergic to one medical syringe that led her parents to believe she's allergic to everything. So she has to spend her childhood and young adult life shut in this mansion. But she made good use of the time. Like, she learned how to play multiple musical instruments, and she learned how to juggle and and, and rap and play ping-pong one-handed and all of these amazing hobbies. She plays the banjo, for Christ's sake. My favorite is that she uh, knows how to not only juggle, but she can juggle on a unicycle, and it's the world's biggest unicycle oh easily 15 feet off the ground maybe 20 she had to be harnessed in like she had to be on a crane the the thing that you were telling me though when they made this movie is that she actually learned how to do just about all of these things that her character does on screen i mean she's playing classical guitar the accordion impressed me the most because that's a really difficult instrument the one that she had the most trouble with was rapping and she claimed that she learned from adrian brody so that's why it sounds terrible yeah. Can I get into my tangent on Adrian oh, go Brody? Go for it. Go for okay, it. I used to love Adrian Brody, uh, specifically because of the movie The Pianist and because of Dummy. And then after a while, he got a reputation. He got kicked off SNL um, when he hosted. Like, he, he's banned. He can never come back because he's so impossible to work with. And I understand how there's, like, some actors like Edward Norton, but there's a difference between being, like, frank and being dick. Mm-hmm. And him in this movie doesn't... It's the one thing, like, that makes me kind of upset at the movie. Because 
I love I love this movie as much as I love The Sting. And as I said so many times on this podcast, I love The Sting. It's one of my favorite movies. This is one of my favorite movies. But Adrian Brody in this movie doesn't fit. Is it just me or does it feel like him being in this is just a little not right. It does feel forced. He's he's a good actor. And I think he makes it work because he's a good actor. But it, it there is something there is something about him that doesn't fit. And we had mentioned actually that there there are other actors who might have done this better than him. Um, I think uh, Edward Norton would have been a good choice. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. maybe as as Stephen and Mark Ruffalo as Bloom. Um, I, I feel Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which you had mentioned from Brick, who does make the appearance in the bar, was originally like a, cast a five-second as... cameo. Yeah, I feel like Joseph Gordon-Levitt would have been much more sincere. He did Five Hundred Days of Summer instead, and I thought of a few other people. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal would have been great. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal would have been good. Yeah, because um, he, he, you would have believed that he was this young, hopeless romantic, um, and then you would have another Zodiac reunion. Uh, Edward Norton, uh, Edward, uh, Edward Norton, yeah. as we said before. I mean, even like if you wanted to to go younger and go with someone like say Joseph Gordon-Levitt, or or have like Stephen be played by um, Vince Vaughn and have Mark Ruffalo because Vince Vaughn was still popular at this time. Yeah, two thousand nine would have been uh, fairly yeah yeah old school Wedding Crashers. Wedding, just just yeah. off of that hype, like have him as has Steven and have uh, Ruffalo as Bloom or even like um, the Afflecks. I mean, yeah. but I yeah, don't want to lose Ruffalo. That's the yeah. thing. Well, that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, like I said, Adrian Brody is a good actor, so he does make it work at a, at the movie is still really, really enjoyable with him as Bloom, but I have to, I have to agree with you. There's something insincere about him. Yeah. Cause he, he was going to play Steven. Hmm. That may have fit better. I just, or what they could have done is had Ruffalo play twin brothers. Yeah, that might not have been terrible. That would have been great. Yeah, <laughs> like like Haley Mills, Parent Trap style. <laughs> Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do, Dad, for your hat. <laughs> God, the hats in this movie. Everyone's wearing hats in this movie. The hats are fantastic. Bang Bang wears a fedora. Um. Rachel Weisz wears a bowler, and then at a different point wears a big black sun hat, like just Annie Hall style. I just thought of it. It was it was Jeremy Renner who I thought of would have been great. Oh as, yeah, as Bloom. When was Hurt Locker? Was that this was this was okay? So this was the same time as Hurt Locker, but Hurt Locker was filmed. He would have been able to make this movie though, because Hurt Locker was filmed in two thousand seven and came out in two thousand nine. This was filmed in two thousand eight and came out in two thousand nine. So yeah. he would have been able to do it. Like Renner would have been great. Jeremy Renner would have been like that right age. Yeah, and I think I mean Hurt Locker is a tough character, but I think Renner proved how likable he can be in the town. Like even as this like vicious, vicious um, you know, bank robbing psychopath. He's still really, there's something really charming about him. Um, yeah, Renner would have been a nice choice for this. Like, nothing against, well, maybe something against <laughs> Adrian Brody, but it, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. But it doesn't detract the movie from being great. Oh, um, Ethan Hawke. Yeah, Ethan e- Hawke. Ethan Hawke as Steven and, and Ruffalo as Bloom. Like, that would have been great. Yeah. I I just feel like, Adrian Brody, you could tell, was difficult. And this was Ryan Johnson's second movie. And 
you can just tell from like the pacing of the movie of some certain scenes that Brody had to be giving him a hard time. Yeah, without a doubt. But like I said, he's a good actor. He makes it work. Um, so we mo- we move on from this point, from this this New Jersey mansion uh, to what will be um, like a like a boat cruise. It's not like a river cruise. They're going to. Um, Oh, where are they going to? They're going they, to Prague? No. Uh, they're originally going to, like, uh, Madrid. They're, they're, going, they're supposed to be going to Madrid. Okay. Yeah. Jersey to Madrid in this giant, majestic, Fitzcarraldo-esque. It's almost like a, it's like a riverboat, but it's not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't, that's, that's the well, it's, it's, it's like, a, it's, it's like a, a fancy like a luxury yacht. tugboat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like a sailing yacht. And, um... What's great in this scene is you get to meet someone called the curator. The curator. Also known as the Belgium, played by Mr. Ro- Robbie, Robbie Coltrane. Coltrane, yeah. So, um, the Belgian is kind of... He, he's in on the con, too. He's... So when you have a con, you hire actors. So he's like the kid twist, if you've seen The Sting. He's the guy that they got to basically help sell their story. Um, one thing worth mentioning in the scene, too, before we get into um, Max, Maximilian Melville, the, uh, the Belgian played by uh, Robbie Coltrane, is that in this scene, uh, Rachel Weisz, we know that she has many talents. We've seen her do many talents, but what we haven't seen her do is anything really super magic related in this scene she does a very very impressive and difficult close-up magic card trick and the funny thing is there's a I mirror love this scene there's a mirror in the scene so you definitely know it's 100 percent her doing the trick which i found to be really impressive but she's doing this magic trick but it's more than that not only is she doing a really difficult magic trick, she's talking about um the art of deception and it was taught to her, uh, the, Ricky Jay taught her how to do this. And what I love about this magic trick is it's kind of exactly like um, in The Sting. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to be talking about The Sting. Because this film was inspired by three films. Do you want to go with the, go through what those three films were? Yeah, so the first one is definitely The Sting, which is about um, two, two, uh, two, two friends who weren't friends who uh, are pulling off a revenge heist. Um, which revenge does play a, a part in this story, but um, that will that will come later on. So you have the sting. Um, what were the other two? We have two others. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Which, that's where the romance comes in. Yes. And then the final one, the the weirdest choice, the last waltz. Martin Scorsese's documentary <laughs> about the breaking up of the band, the band. Yes. And what's his name? Uh, Ruffalo's character Stephen is based on Robbie Robertson. Yeah, it makes sense. When you watch The Last Waltz, it actually does make a lot of sense. And at the end of the movie, I, I looked it up. The song that she is singing, that Bang Bang sings in this movie, is Sleeping by the band, by Robbie Robertson. Right. So we so we get this magic trick that Rachel Weisz does, um, and we she's talking about deception. So this is the part where we're like, okay, well, clearly she's intelligent, but does she know that she's being conned, or is she just going along with it because she wants the adventure? She's been trapped this whole time, and now she's getting romance and danger because and she said, mystery. And she said that when she sees something she likes, she wants to learn how to do it. Yes. And that's what this is. She She sees... The um, 
she sees that they're smugglers, so she wants. Or she sees that um, they're antiquity dealers, so she wants to be an antiquities dealer. She then sees that they're smugglers, so she wants to be a smuggler. So like she's very easily influenced. I would have loved to see a scene where he's smoking a cigarette and <laughs> he's like, "Want one?" And she's like, "Yes, I do." There's also um, so after after we get introduced to Maximilian for the first time in the scene, um, Adrian Brody and uh, Rachel Weisz have a dance scene. To Maximilian. W- w- yeah, that's Robbie Coltrane's character. I thought his name was Melville. His his first name is Maximilian. Oh, okay. His name is Maximilian Melville, which we'll get to that. Yep. That's at the end of this cruise. But um, yeah, Adrian Brody and Rachel Weisz have a dance scene uh, to uh, the theme from Amarcord, which actually made me think of not. Amacord by Fellini, but Lestrada. Um, Rachel Weiss is dressed like the main female character in Lestrada in this in this scene. And of course, Adrian Brody is uh, short for Anthony Quinn. Lest- <laughs> well, well, Lestrada, Lestrada is about um, circus travelers and about a woman who's falling in love for the first time. But there's tragedy. There's great tragedy in her life. Yes. Um, so they have this amazing breakfast standoff where. Like, you know that, that this guy is in on the con from the very beginning, but but when Adrian Brody sees him, he's just like, you. It's almost like Seinfeld. He's like, hello, Newman. Yes. It's a very, uh, I was hoping you were going to do your wait night. Hello, Jerry. <laughs> That was too. That was that was um. That wasn't Wayne Knight. What was that? That was um. Newman was Wayne Knight. No, no, Newman was it. That whatever I was doing just now. That was um. Oh God, it's gonna kill me. Um. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um. Uh, Lolita. Who's in Lolita? Oh, Jeremy Irons. No, not Jeremy Irons. The other one. Uh, Peter Sellers. No, not Char- Peter- James Mason. James Mason. That's what that was. That was James Mason just now. It's like, hello, Jerry. <laughs> You used to be able to do. Wayne used to Knight. be able to do a Wayne Knight. That was not what that was, though. Um. So, so the Belgian this this like confrontation has one of the meanest lines in the entire thing because they're like, maybe you should just eat your waffles and stop talking and <laughs> shut your mouth, fat man. <laughs> no, he says, eat your waffles, fat man. <laughs> so goddamn mean. It's so mean. Yeah. Um. See that's 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 the thing that I wondered about too. How much of this con is Mark Ruffalo responsible for? Because Adrian Brody actually seemed surprised to see uh, Robbie Coltrane's character, um, hence why he was so annoyed when he when he saw him. Like he didn't. It, they're planning the whole con, but he didn't know that he was a part of it from the very beginning. Stephen plans every inch of the con, and he doesn't um, know. Uh, Bloom doesn't know. I feel like the only person who knows is Bang Bang, and that's because. Mm. Steven and Bang Bang have this either it's either highly sexually charged or it's very androgynous like yeah they're either lovers or siblings like. well, one one thing worth mentioning too and again this goes to the the card trick where if, does Rachel Wise know that she's being conned and is she going in on it um I'm a firm believer from the very beginning that she is most definitely well this is another part of it um so they're they're on a they're on a ship um, named after a ship in a Melville story. Maximilian Melville is Robbie Coltrane's character, and the story is called The Confidence Man, which is actually it's one of the first short stories written about con artists. So By she Herman knows. Melville. 
she knows that Melville wrote a story about con artists, and now she's being introduced to a guy named Melville in this con that she's in. Uh, yeah, and the the way she says it, she's like, huh, that's weird. The boat's name, and your name's Melville, and Melville wrote the confidence, man. That's weird. <laughs> like, yeah. Just the- <laughs> like, isn't that weird? Oh, there's, there's another thing I felt worth mentioning, too. Um, uh, Steven, in one of these scenes on this boat, reads a letter written to to them from their nemesis, who we'll be introduced to, referred to as the Diamond Dog. Because I guess Rebel Rebel was already taken. Well, here's the thing. Stephen refers to, when he's reading the letter, he refers to Diamond Dog as Harold Fagan, which is a character from Oliver Twist. Now, Fagan, in Oliver Twist, is a con artist who raises orphans to be pickpockets. Well, no, he, he, he just says he's our Fagan. Like, yeah. I'm like... Like he knows who this guy is. Like, he, it's well established that that he knows that. Like he's not saying that the the guy's real name that the Diamond Dog's no, real no, name no, is no, Fagan. No, 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 but he's yeah. That the basically this is their mentor. We're, so we're introduced to the villain only by name only, Diamond Dog. Pretty good name for a villain. I'm not gonna lie. Um, and he's very played. Ominous. He's played by Maximilian Schill, and this was his last movie before he died. Uh, two years ago. Yes. Um, which, honestly, for for a last movie, that it's kind of impressive. Yeah, a pretty good actor too. I like his voice is very deep, very deep. Maximilian. Wasn't he okay? He was in Judgment at Nuremberg. Yes. Was he the guy who was in the In Laws? The one who was like, oh, very handsome. Yes, he is. Yeah. He also what Would I mentioned like during <laughs> what I, what I mentioned during this film is Maximilian Schill also plays the chef. In um, the Freshman, which is which is a con movie about how the mafia are convincing people that they're paying top dollar to eat endangered animals when in actuality they're just eating, you know, chicken and fish. That uh, that was the one with um, Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick and, and Marlon, Brando. Marlon Brando. Um, but yeah, so so we get introduced by name only the, the who is going to be the villain of this movie, the Diamond Dog, and. Um, so you have parallels to the confidence man and to the sting. Like if there was another thing on top of all of that pop culture, we already said Oliver twist is another one because bloom is clearly Oliver. Uh, Steven is clearly the artful Dodger and um, diamond dog is Fagan. And what's her name? Rachel vice is what's her name? Yeah. I don't remember the, well, I don't remember he... the female character in that book. I wouldn't. I'd be. I'd actually, if I picked it up right now and it was Penelope, I would laugh. <laughs> Here's the thing: Is he Fagin? Is Diamond Dog Fagin? I would consider the Belgian more of a Fagin, and and Diamond Dog is more Bill Sykes. Well, Fa- like... Fagin and in, in Oliver Twist raised these orphans and taught them everything they know, which is what Diamond Dog does. Diamond Dog is supposed to be this Russian street mafioso con master who we presume taught. Stephen, how to do magic tricks, and taught Bloom how to con. Um, we'll get to we'll get to the scene in the bar that happens in Saint Petersburg. But there there are things that happened between Diamond Dog and these boys. CD maybe quite terrible things, and and Adrian Brody's character Bloom does not trust Diamond Dog and doesn't even want to be in the same room 
as Diamond Dog, which speaks volumes. To it's me. hinted at that he was abused by yeah. Diamond Dog. We don't know it how. Was physically with or, violence or something much darker. Yeah. But the way Brody freezes up, like this is the one time where casting Adrian Brody is okay in my book, because the way he gets scared like a little kid is really good acting. Um. So, so once they get uh to Madrid. Um, basically they're enticed or Penelope is enticed by the Belgian to go to Prague to steal this like it's an 8th century prayer book that we find out isn't actually really a book it's a prop it's a prop that Adrian Brody and Stephen either stole from a pri- from a prior heist or made themselves. It looks like it looks like the Bible from Paper Moon. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it looks like um it actually um it's op it's open it's open on a pedestal with like sunlight coming in on it. It looks like a Gutenberg Bible, but a Steve Gutenberg Bible. <laughs> yes, um, essentially Penelope and and the brothers Bloom and Bang Bang have to go to Prague to go into this famous cathedral slash government building to steal this uh, 8th century prayer book to sell to an Argentinian, a man from the Argentine. Yeah, because I love love Rachel Weisz. She's like, Argentine, Argentinian, and then it just cuts to Robbie Coltrane, and he's like, a man from the Argentine. (laughs) Uh, This is how we... We find out this is how the con actually really works and what's actually at stake. So they're pretending to be the middlemen where they're going to pay a million dollars for this book, and then the Argentinian is going to give them 2.5 for it, giving them a profit of 1.5 million. But the thing is, is they don't have the million. Uh, Rachel Weiss, however, she's this heiress to i think they said her parents were oil magnates so she's she's got millions of dollars but does she because like they keep saying that she as the film goes on she claims that she uses the rest of her money to to pay for the final part of the con right this might be the last the bit the last bit of her um inheritance but essentially she's going to front the million for them to sell slash steal this book to get 1.5 million, but in truth, there is no 1.5 million. There's no 2.5. Um, the brothers Bloom are just going to steal a million dollars from Rachel, which is actually, you know, it's a lot of money. So yeah, pretty, but for pretty 2009, decent, pretty, pretty reasonable heist. Okay, you could retire on a million. No, okay, if you I got a story for wisely. you. There was this family that I knew, who they won the lottery. They won a million dollars, and they spent it all in under a month. I believe that a thousand percent. Oh, we're going to get one of them fancy televisions. There's a guy I saw in a newspaper who, uh, w- you know, worked in like fast food and won five million in the lottery and then just had no idea how he had never had money before. He didn't know how money worked and he blew it all in less than six months. Um, people also forget you have to pay taxes on that and that comes at the end of a fiscal year. So like when you when you have five million and you blow five million in six months, in six more months you get your tax bill, which is like probably something crazy. It's probably Welcome like back to financial 000. talk with Matthew yeah. Sinclair. And then you, well you end up going to jail. That's the thing. People who don't who who are dummies who don't know how to spend money end up going to jail for like tax evasion. Yeah. So so she um fronts the money they go to Prague, and this is where... So they're riding a train. They ride this train to Prague and back. Oh, I wrote this part down. I know where you're going with this. And she gets... You find out that lightning storms and trains moving 
turn Rachel Vice on. She she flat out has an orgasm in this film. And I also wrote that um, Bang Bang, there's a similar response. There's a, there's a, a montage where Bang Bang is blowing up Barbie dolls and other bits of plastic toys with explosives. And the look on Bang Bang's face is orgasmic. But we learn that, yeah, just as you said, Scott, trains and lightning storms do give Penelope orgasms. <laughs> and it's so weird. There's also... Uh, the, the the way that Ryan Johnson writes like love scenes in all of his movies is less like first off Ryan Johnson's one of my favorite directors so this is not going to be a slight but the way he writes them is more like like a film lover writing what he thinks a love scene is because in Brick they they Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Nora Zether they they make love but they're wearing their clothes <laughs> Like they're making out and then cut to a scene like afterwards and they're still fully dressed. In this, they kiss and it's kind of cute, kind of sweet. But then like the next scene, um, Adrian Brody is waving Bang Bang away and she grabs his hand and smells it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a weird thing. And and they, I don't know if that was improv or if it's in the script, but she grabs Adrian Brody's hand. Well, he's talking and he's waving his hand. And she specifically grabs his hand and smells two fingers, <laughs> and then he and then gives him his hand back, which is like a weird. Sexual Ew! Thing it's in that movie. so gross. It, it's like five seconds, but it's a really weird bit, which leads me to believe that it probably wasn't written and just happened right there on set. It, it's super gross. Super gross. I'm fine with it. Um, so we, we talked to, oh, we forgot a location in this film. So, so let's, let's do the full Indiana Jones map style timeline. The Brothers Bloom open in middle America as kids. Cut to them as adults. They're in Berlin. They go from Berlin to New Jersey. They go from New Jersey to Spain. Spain to Prague. They go from Prague to this next part of the journey to Mexico, where we're leading up to the end, air quote, end of this con okay so in prague they blow up this cathedral yes. because the bags get switched they do a classic abbott and costello switcheroo and with dynamite which with dynamite as, as one or c4 as one does so what it's supposed to be is a little sliver of c4 is supposed to just spark up a puff of smoke as uh, as Stephen, as uh, Mark Ruffalo says, it's just, we're, we're setting up the bomb. They're going to set off a puff of smoke. You're going to get in. You're going to steal this book. You're going to get out. But not a puff of smoke. Ends up blowing up this huge, huge tower off the side of this, uh, like I said, this cathedral-looking government building. They in blow Prague. it up. They blow they it blow, up. They blow it up. And the the word, the, the cancel abort word is corned beef. So then Brody, Adrian Brody, is just like, corned beef! Corned beef! And <laughs> Waving she, his arms. And she sneaks in, and for somehow, she gets the book, she gets caught, and then they let her go. She's So she's dressed as, like, somewhere between an Avenger and Mary Poppins. She's wearing a cape, a cape... Let's specify. A cape and a bowler. The Rafe Fiennes Avenger. Yes. Like, the, the British TV series, not the Mark mm, Ruffalo. Not the, not the, uh, not the... the Marvel series, but anyway, so she gets caught by the chief of police, who I also want to mention looks like Fred the Baker from uh, Time to Make the Donuts. <laughs> He's like this tiny, tiny, like five foot one man with a little mustache. But um, he's the chief of police of Prague. She, he lets her go for reasons we don't entirely understand. Why? Maybe it's money. Maybe she's just charming. Maybe she tells him the truth. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so then, when they're in Mexico, so she lets them go. 
him and Penelope do it. Yes. <laughs> on the train. And then um, they go to Mexico, and that's when you find out uh, the whole part of the con was for him to tell her that they were in a con, and then him and Bloom, him and Steven have a gunfight, pretty much. Right, right. So in so in Mexico, um, this is this is the part where remember at the beginning I kept saying con within a con. This is there's something that Steven said, Mark Ruffalo said at the beginning of the movie where there's a part where it is revealed, where it is, I think he, the word he is was tender, but this is when we, we get to Mexico, this is when the jig is supposed to be up for Penelope, where Adrian Brody says, oh, it's it's all a con, we, we, we took your million, there is no value to the book, this is, end, end of the line for you. Yeah, he says, what he, what he says is there's going to be tender conflict resolution on the beach <laughs> like it's like it's a business seminar <laughs> like, and so so when they're on the beach um he he says it's a con and she still thinks that he loves her which he does but he claims that he doesn't yeah bloom i should say bloom um bloom loves penelope so time. so they he's like let's go get the money and she's like i don't care about the money i care about you let's run away and He's like, no, we're getting your money. Like, like, no, I don't want your love. You don't really know. We me. don't want your love. We just want the million, sweetheart. This is also not the first time this happens in the movie. I, it was worth mentioning that the very beginning of the film, in the bar in Berlin, there's a beautiful woman who Nora Zether. Nora Zether, who who gives exposition about their backstory. She's great for that. But she she's kind of into Adrian, and he's like, no, I can't be attached to anyone. This life doesn't allow me to do that. Well, he says it's just set up. You don't really love me. You, you love don't really it. love me. You love the idea of me. Yeah. So. So they go into Steven's room to get the money. And this is, I love this line. This proves how cool Mark Ruffalo is. He goes, he's looking to, Bloom is looking to turn on the light. And he goes, turns on at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) They walk into a pitch black bungalow and they're trying to find the lamp. And he goes, turns on at the bottom. And so then they get into a conflict. And this is where the confrontation is, where uh, Steven has a gun and he fights with Adrian Brody. Then they shoot out the light, um, which is clearly planned by Bang Bang. Bang Bang is hitting a squib and it turns off the light. Yep. And uh, Stephen gets shot. <laughs> Stephen gets shot, in, in air quotes. And con's over, presumably. Ruffalo's acting as he dies is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um and and this is the part of the story where it gets a bit sad. Penelope's gone. Um, because Adrian goes back to his studio lighthouse in Montenegro. Well, Stephen Stephen isn't shot because Penelope walks over to him and and he thinks he's having this tender moment with his brother. And Bloom's like, "I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving your side." And Penelope comes over to him and he's like, "Oh, you're gonna hug me too?" <laughs> and she just reaches into his pocket and pulls out the squib. Yeah. And then that's where it goes into everyone, the band breaking up. The the jig is up. But we find out at this point, we find out that there's a con outside of the con. Because now we've got Adrian Brody in Montenegro not sure what to do. We've got Steven, who isn't really dead. 
Ah, but we forgot about our villain. We forgot about the Diamond Dog, who is also... Why are you saying this like it's old-timey radio? And the <laughs> Diamond, Diamond Dog, dog got it's away. theatrical. <laughs> well, the Diamond Dog is also a very theatrical guy. He's got one eye. He wears an eye patch with pearls, and he wears like a, like a bandana, like he's some sort of pirate. And he also wears a pearl... Um, a pearl wristlet, which I noticed this time watching the movie. You know who I would love to see play at the Diamond Dog? Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> Tommy Wiseau would be a great Diamond oh, Dog. Tom so Waits you stabbed also... me in the hand. Why would you do such a thing? But so um, we find out that there is revenge. There's a revenge plot between the Diamond Dog and these boys. The Diamond Dog only has one eye. Presumably... Steven, I think, is Steven responsible a, for that. Steven took a cocktail fork and jabbed his eye out because yeah. he does it again when when Diamond Dog meets with Bloom in the bar when they're in Prague. When they're in Prague. No, that's in uh, St. Petersburg. No, no, that's the second time. Okay. Diamond right. Dog confronts him in, the pro- in, Prague, in Prague. And he's like, oh, you're scared. And Bloom is just scared shitless. He's not moving. And Diamond Dog goes, oh, Steven. And Steven just punches him out and takes uh, another fork and stabs him in the hand. So this is the final con with Diamond Dog getting his revenge. Yes, Diamond Dog's revenge. Meanwhile, in the St. Petersburg. Um, so the boys are heading to St. Petersburg, and this is where all the real stakes come in for the film. This is where the danger is. There is a real car-to-car chase with a shootout. There are real explosions. There are real consequences. We we don't know what happened to Bang Bang. She's probably dead. But well, okay. So let's let's, uh, let's break it down. They're in St. <laughs> Petersburg. Break it down now, y'all. They're in, help me break it down, Scott. They're in St. <laughs> Petersburg. <laughs> what happens? Okay, so what happens is they're driving to the con. Um, they had a meeting with Diamond Dog, who's like, "Oh, I know your precious Penelope. Don't worry, I won't do anything creepy." Yeah. And and so they're driving and. Bloom is lying very sweetly on Penelope's lap, and a bullet goes right through where his head was. Yes. So clearly he was going to shoot Bloom first, and Bloom goes down. And then there's this chase with, like, this clearly this Russian mafioso type. And they blow out their tires, the car goes flying in the air, the car lights on fire, and they go their separate ways. Um, Steven gets kidnapped. And Bang Bang finds Bloom and Penelope, who are still together. Mm-hmm. She goes to help them. Bang Bang explodes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then they get a phone call from Diamond Dog. And what does he want? Uh, what does... So this 2. is when... 2.7 million dollars. Yeah, he wants... Diamond, Diamond Dog wants the 2.7 that when going back to big to, to earlier with the argentinian they're supposed to sell this valuable book which we find out isn't really a valuable book it's a prop but they're supposed to sell this valuable book to front a million to a guy who's going to pay 2.7 million so really there is no argentinian diamond dog is this other guy who's going to get conned to bot, you know, to to get the mon- to pay the money for this book, but but it is Diamond Dog's revenge. Diamond wants the money, and the brothers just don't have it. Well, he wants the money, and he wants to kill Stephen. Yes. yes. So, so an eye for an eye. So Bloom thinks that this is still part of the con that they're going to take the rest of Penelope's money, and so she wires the money. He goes to get Stephen, and 
you find out it's a setup because not only does Diamond Dog want to kill Steven, he also wants to kill Bloom too for being a spineless jellyfish. Yes. So this brings us to the almost the very end of the film. This is this is the last big standoff climax scene that takes place in a dilapidated theater. Yeah, we thought it was the theater from either The Prestige or The Illusionist or both. Because um, it looks exactly like I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, "That looks like the theater from it's the Illusionist." It's like this once, this once beautiful Victorian style theater that's just completely destroyed at this point. To quote Harry Nilsson, "Long ago <laughs> and far away." Um, so Bloom's like, "Is this real or is this a con?" And Stephen's like, "What the hell, man? I'm tied to a chair." And Stephen is tied to a chair. He's bloody at this point too. Yeah, so he's been. He's been stabbed across the face. He's been shot right below his uh, right side on his liver. He's got, he's got a busted eye like he's been punched repeatedly. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, he kind of looks like Mark Sylvester Ruffalo Stallone. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo looks like he's, he's had it in this scene. Um, so then Bloom finally gets a phone call from Diamond Doug, who's like, you're spineless, you're never going to do anything, and you can't pull that trigger. So then he pulls the trigger and kills these Russian hitmen, and uh, I think one runs away to the Diamond Dog, and Steven falls on the ground and dies, and he's like, is this just a con? And he pops back up, it was a con. And he says, tastes like tinfoil. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo does like a like a hand over feet backwards like cartwheel style handstand, and is like, "Da da, was this your card? It's all a it's all a joke, kid." And um and this is when Adrian Brody says, "Yeah, haha, con's over. You know, have a good life. I'm out." He's finally out. Brings us back full circle to the beginning of the film. Well, actually, he doesn't. He's still in. It's it's Ruffalo this time who's like no you you gotta you and Penelope you lay low yeah. I think you need some time away from me, and he's like but I don't want to be away from you Stephen so it's hinted at like the whole time that it's Bloom who actually is the enabler. So cut so cut so cut to the car Penelope and Adrian are in the car and they're heading out and Adrian he's got red he's got red red shirt cuffs which are turning brown which we learn earlier in the movie that um, real real blood also tastes like tinfoil, but rather fake blood stays will stays red. will stay red and real blood will turn brown. Will stay red. No. <laughs> yes, no. So now Adrian Brody knows the real jig is up is that Steven actually was really hurt and it cuts to Mark Ruffalo in a theater by himself pulling up a chair. His death scene is so gross. Yes. It is horrifying. Sitting down in said chair in front of a spotlight in a very theatrical way and dying with his eyes open. Uh, one thing we, we've been glossing over is some stuff left and right, and usually it's fine, but because I am so anal with this movie, there's one thing I want to point out. The whole movie, Ruffalo, is trying to master this card trick where he just pulls a card out after telling someone to think of a card, and he's like, is this your card? And everyone's like, no. No. And then he knows that the card that his brother always picks, his favorite card, is the Queen of Hearts because he can't find love. So he says, think of a card. Got it? Shows him the Queen of Hearts. And he's like, that's the best damn trick I've ever seen. Um, and that's how you know that Stephen's story is over. He's given his brother the Queen of Hearts, who is Rachel Weisz. Mm. And then um, this is where, this is my biggest problem because it goes from like a million to a like a billion from here it goes from already being at like a million 
and it goes way past that because um, Rachel Vice goes, Stephen once told me, when the hell are you talking to Stephen? <laughs> yeah. Like, Stephen once told me that there's no such thing as an unwritten life, just a poorly written one. And, like, the look Brody gives her is like, what the hell? My brother just died. Brother didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even buy me dinner on my birthday. <laughs> and so... So the the music is really sad, and then they walk off into the sunset, and the music goes ba da 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 da. We're also forgetting a footnote here, where um, when Penelope and Bang Bang became friends, Bang Bang told Penelope, um, and this is like brought back, like she's not, we never really see Bang Bang really speak on screen, but Penelope says that Bang Bang told her, when you're done with something, blow it up, and it's during this part of end of this film montage where penelope actually blows up her mansion yeah i remember like, like die hard style building up blowing up behind her when we're watching it i was like what the hell that that, that house alone was probably worth millions, 20 million dollars yeah just blows up this mansion like it was nothing i have seen that house before that mansion before isn't that the mansion from garden state it might be isn't it might, it might be. Isn't that What's-His-Name's Mansion, the guy who invented Silent Velcro? Yeah, I also thought of the mansion from um, X-Men First Class because there's this there's this mansion between Jersey and New York that it, like, takes up, like, a thousand acres. Like, it's just this huge, huge building, palisade, you know, grounds. So I thought of that place, too. I forget the name of it, but, yeah. <laughs> the Scarface anyway, this mansion, this mansion gets blown up in the movie. It, the, the mansion looks like if the Golden Girls won the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so she has no money. They have no money. He probably has a couple million saved up from all of his cons. Yeah, from the he probably has at least a million from this heist with Penelope. I don't though. I don't think he got to see any of that money. I think Stephen held on to that. But yeah, but he probably knows all the bank yeah, accounts yeah. for Stephen. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the nitty gritty about why this was such a flop. So this movie had the misfortune of being released. They released it in more theaters than they released Brick. They released this in about... Um, Brick was released in about 800 theaters. This was released in about 1,000. So, more multiplexes. However, it came out a week after J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie, in the same weekend as Ron Howard's Angels and Demons. Yeah, tough competition for this little indie con film. And that's what I'm going to be talking about all summer with Summer Flopbusters, is... Oh, poor planning on some of the movie studios. Like, don't release... This movie would have made all of its budget back if it was released in March. You know what? I'm glad to see this movie got to see the light of day at all in a real theater. You gotta think, if this movie came out today, it might even just be VOD or, like, straight to Netflix. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because Netflix is still a huge audience, but it's one of those things where it might not have actually ever played in a real theater. Well, if it was released today, it would be released in, like, maybe a couple of theaters. Most of the indie ones in Boston, New York, and LA, but this would be a same day as VOD on like Netflix, uh, not Netflix on Amazon. Uh, not it. What is wrong with me today? Apparently, I'm having a stroke. <laughs> you smell pennies. <laughs> uh, as the same day on like Xfinity or FiOS, like that section on VOD where they're like same day as theaters. Hey, if you like this, you may also like the Brothers Bloom. <laughs> um, here's a question, and I'm unfamiliar because this is my first time on the show. Long time listener, first time caller. Um, how would we rate this film in the basket? How does it? How does it work? Run me through it again. Was you it 10, don't 10 listen bangles? to the podcast. <laughs> I've listened to a bunch. Okay, so the way that that a it, basketful. <laughs> so the way that this works is um, on a scale of thirteen out of 
one bagel. So out of a baker's dozen, how many are in the bagel basket? How many bagels are left for the writers? Are there 13? Is this a perfect, you know, film or TV series? Or is there one? They were working so hard they didn't want to eat. So there are 13 left? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember this now. Yeah. So out of 13 bagels, how many are taken out and how many are left? Ooh. I'm going to give it a seven. Really? That low? Well, I seven seven is more than fifty percent. You gotta think six six came out, and you know there. Like I said, this is a great film, but there are problems. With, there are weird cuckoo banana moments in this film that don't immediately add up. Maybe an eight. Maybe an eight. Yeah, there are bagels missing from this basket, though. I will yeah. give it even even as good a film as it is. There I'm are. I'm just weird being a dick things. to you because I was gonna give this eight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Eight or nine. It's still one of my favorite movies, but there are so many flaws. Um, casting is a big one. Yeah. Ryan Johnson clearly did not have final cut because there are some moments that you could tell that like the ending itself feels like, like less of a uh, Ryan Johnson ending and more of a summit studios. Like, cause they have to give you that happy ending. Be- this, this be- between seeing, yeah, I was going to say between seeing brick looper, this film and last, last Jedi. Jedi. I feel like this film actually probably had a, a slightly darker tone to it, but I feel like the studio maybe cut stuff out that made the film seem lighter than it actually was. Because there are there are tropes to every Ryan Johnson movie, and the biggest trope is someone dies. Yeah. Or multiple people die. Where in Brick, spoilers for Brick, but honestly, guys, you had almost 15 years to see that movie. Um, the main girl, I mean, they show you in the trailer, the main girl um, that he's looking for dies. Yes. And then a bunch of other people get like their brains blown out. There's one scene where there's a gun in a guy's mouth and boop, permanent haircut. (laughs) (laughs) I do love brick. That's yeah. Here's the thing too. We're not entirely um, shitting on this film. It's worth watching. Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's so good. But I think all of Ryan Johnson's other films, are also worth watching. Brick is still really, really last Jedi. Cause I know how you feel about last Jedi. Uh, I love last Jedi. I don't not, not love last Jedi. I got I got pro- I got problems with last Jedi, but yeah, we'll, but, we'll but, have that but, out later. But this, um, so like this is an ongoing trope. People die in Ryan Johnson movies. If you see someone you like in a Ryan Johnson movie, chances are they're probably gonna die. Yeah, chances are things aren't gonna work out for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Does he make a cameo in Last Jedi? I jo- don't remember yes, seeing him. Yes, he does. I don't remember seeing okay, him, but so I want to hear this. Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Last Jedi. He plays slow and low. And that is the guy who's like, I told him not to park on the beach. Oh, that, my God. That's him in a body capture suit, in a motion capture suit. And I told him they couldn't park here, and they went right to the casino. That, that's, like that. Yeah. I watched oh, that movie two weeks go. ago. Still a movie. Anyway. <laughs> I shouldn't shit on Last Jedi. Last Jedi's fun. I but love Last I got Jedi. Some, I got, I got serious you. problems with that movie. How dare you? Anyway, Brothers Bloom, yeah, a solid eight, solid eight out of thirteen. I, just, I think is fairly everything high. about it just feels right. Like yeah. this, this it, it makes me feel good. It actually does make me feel good watching that movie. This should have been a summer movie that, like, this should have been like the Little Miss Sunshine or the um, the uh, Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> no, this should have been like the Little Miss Sunshine or say. Um, the big sick, like the type of indie movie. It should have got more credit than it does. Not that it, it deserved, shouldn't have lost should have, fifteen million dollars. Yeah. yeah, should have should have got noticed for more things. And, but this is how we're going to start summer flop busters. Some of them are going to be good, like Brothers Bloom. Others are going to be un. 
unbearable. So, so anyways, <laughs> um, I would like to come back to review another episode at a later undetermined time. <laughs> well, you will, because all, all summer long for summer flopbusters, I'm going to have millions of guests on. Some are going to be repeats. Matt will be a repeat. He's going to be on later in June. Um, I would love to cover a bad film. You are going to cover a bad film. So, Yay! So some of these movies are going to be really good, like Brothers Bloom. Others are going to be unbearable, like the one I have in store for him. But the one that Ruh-roh. we're going to cover next that Haley has to watch Ooh. is Nerve. Ooh. That movie is mm. like if if the movie Mannequin decided to take quaaludes and just went to town <laughs> i actually saw that film i saw a nerve I, I don't hate it and i don't love it yeah i i got i got questions i definitely have questions so if you Poor have Haley, Am- it's gonna have to watch that movie if you have amazon prime you can watch nerve um if you have hbo you can watch nerve um so yeah yeah or you could just not and tell people you saw it if you, you watch the trailer a bunch of times <laughs> i set up the trailer with um uh the music from Mannequin. So, yeah. Um, until next time, I am Scott Carlin. I am special guest Matt Sinclair. And where can they find the oh, Writer's Bagel of Basket? Of course. You can find Writer's Bagel Basket online on Curland on Film under the Writer's Bagel Basket section of com On Twitter, which is a promo at the beginning of this, um, at Writer Bagel Basket. You know, no vowels, vowels, no vowels. Um, and email us, writersbagelbasket at gmail.com. And uh, uh, where you are now on Radio Public, you can download us on Apple, on Stitcher, on Google Play, and uh, SoundCloud, of course. So until next time, I'm Scott Kurland. And I'm Matt Sinclair. Bye. Bye.